This is an ABC podcast. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seats, two-term incumbents, independents. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello there and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast, joining you from the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. And I'm Fran Kelly from Frankly, also on the Gadigal land in the same studio for a change. PK, talking to you in real life. How good is that? Real life. (laughs) Real life. Well, PK, a week after the budget, how's it gone for the government? That's always the question we ask about this time. But wait, there's more. The government thought it wouldn't just focus on its first budget. It would also unleash big new industrial relations legislation as well, which is not without controversy. And we're going to come back to that. But PK, just on the budget, last week here on The Party Room with Lenore Taylor, we spent a fair bit of time trying to work out why the government didn't give more of a handout to ease the cost of living in the budget, in particular to ease the cost of power bills because that we got that sort of terrifying forecast in the budget of power bills going up 50% or plus. People weren't happy and the government got that message pretty quickly after the budget was released and they've been making it clear in the days since that they are going to do something about energy prices, maybe a cap on energy prices, but... Also, the government's sticking to its guns on cash handouts, the PM leading the charge that inflation is public enemy number one. The easy option would have been for us to funnel these savings straight into a cash splash, a one-off giveaway to buy a headline. Cheap politics, but hugely expensive economics. Not just because of the dollar cost, not just because that's exactly the sort of short-term approach that got Australia into this situation, but because the untargeted spending would actually make the problem worse. Mm, cash splash bad. We're going to hear a lot of that, I think. Soon we're going to be joined by Shane Wright, the Senior Economics Correspondent for the SMH and The Age. Um, we got another rate rise too this week, PK, so the pain has intensified even since the budget was handed down. But before we get to Shane and all of that, back to where I started, how has the budget gone down? It's a bit that that good, huh? Look, it's been a bit underwhelming according to the published opinion polls, which show that most people don't think the budget is going to be good for them or more accurately they look at the forecasts and they think it's going to be a pretty gloomy uh, time ahead and they haven't been given much help, which is accurate. It is going to be a gloomy economic time ahead. That's a fact uh, that all of the projections show that and it's true they haven't been given um, financial assistance. Um, and guess what? They, they thought they should have been given some cost of living relief, and that's not surprising. The I'm government... shocked. People <laughs> thought they should have been giving a handout. Look, I think the, the feedback is loud and clear, though, that people want uh, want solutions. I don't think, though, that people you know only want it in the form of just a cash handout. If the government does deliver, for instance, on an intervention on energy prices to bring them down or to to, to, you know, really take the pressure off those um, as we enter 2023, particularly before the winter, I think that the government will be given some credit. Um, The government has a message and 
it's been trying to hammer this message now way before the budget and certainly in the budget, it's entrenched in the budget. And that is that, um, you know, it won't do any of this flashy handout stuff that it ultimately wants to provide um, fiscal discipline, a prudent approach and that and that the times require it. I think they are right that the times require it. I think that's economics 101. But actually what they're trying to do, what did we describe it as? We've used this term a zillion times before, but it's kind of the vomit principle. Mm. The treasurer, Jim Chalmers, repeats, repeats, repeats so that he can get the confidence consensus with the Australian public that this is the approach that's needed. So that message we got there from Albanese, the Prime Minister, basically that and that and that again. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, totally. And meanwhile, opposition leaders, of course, do what they do. Peter Dutton is out and about saying the government should have had a policy ready to lower energy prices already. You know, he wants new gas fields. Now, uh, I think I'm with him a bit on the fact that the government could have had more of an answer, I think, in place, in readiness uh, to deal with the skyrocketing energy prices forecast in the budget. But new gas fields, PK, I mean, that didn't happen overnight. You know, the energy crunch, price crunch is, is now basically and for the next 18 months and new gas fields take, there's a lot to do, right, to get a new gas field. It's it won't do anything next year. <laughs> like, that's a fact. Now, whether you want to have a broader conversation about um, long-term supply, that's a, okay. Climate change. Yeah, I think it's reasonable to have that conversation. But yes, at the same time, uh, we have to be consistent with all of our policies and obviously climate change and the government's commitments to net zero by 2050 and accelerating the pace to renewables at the same time. The International Energy Agency says no more gas fields should be open, that sort of thing. That sort of thing. So that's one thing. But okay, the opposition now is really muscling up or trying to. Um, I don't know if they're getting much public traction yet, but what they're trying to do is say, uh, this is supply, supply, supply. Angus Taylor has been really active in this space. He gave a National Press Club address this week responding to the budget, but he says on gas prices, for instance, the government has to deal with supply. The issue, however, Fran, is in fact... The heads of agreement um, was only signed several weeks ago by the Resources Minister, Madeleine King, which did actually deal with supply issues. There is a Putting shortfall. Putting more gas into the market. Making sure that we've got enough. That was an agreement with the gas companies. It has done nothing to deal with prices. I spoke to Ed Husick on RM Breakfast. We're recording this on a Thursday morning. I spoke to him earlier on the Thursday. And he said, in fact, in some cases, the manufacturers he's talking to have secured deals with gas companies, which are even higher in energy prices. So, yes, they have got their supply. They've got that locked in. Domestic but can supply. they afford the gas? Doesn't mean closing doors, loss of jobs. Is manufacturing sustainable? Are households able to maintain, um, you know, paying these bills? I don't think so. So price caps, that's definitely on the table. A, a pretty radical intervention. Yeah, the market's not going to like that, but I think the government's decided, don't you? They have 100% decided that they will intervene. They have made it crystal clear how tough that intervention is still yet to be determined. There is also, uh, I think, a parallel conversation going on about whether a windfall profit tax on uh, gas um, companies should be imposed. Government hasn't settled on that at mm. all, but they're no longer shutting that down. And I think that is significant. Yeah, we'll talk more about this with Shane, I think, because a couple of other uh, events worth mentioning, I think, PK, since we last spoke on the podcast. Noel Pearson's Boyer Lecture on the struggle for Indigenous recognition. He here is. We are a much unloved people. We are perhaps the ethnic group Australians feel 
least connected to. We are not popular and we are not personally known to many Australians. Few have met us and a small minority count us as friends. It was that line in Noel Pearson's first instalment of his Boyer Lectures here at the ABC on Radio National and on ABC iView. I urge you to watch the whole thing. Moved me to tears almost that line. Well, that line resonated because we know it to be, in our lived experience, instinctively true. First Nations people, 60,000 years on this land, rich cultures, many cultures, many languages, real diversity, and yet... He says, we are a much unloved people, and how can that be so? And so he frames this incredibly brilliant speech in the context of the voice to parliament, entrenching it in the constitution. And his case is a couple of things that you would reduce racism. He really believes that you will deal with this issue of racism in this country by entrenching a voice in a constitution and start to change that much unloved story. And at the same time, he makes this comparison, which I found incredibly compelling as well, with the same-sex marriage postal survey. He said that uh, gay people are in people's families. And I think that's right. That was Mm. the story of the gay marriage plebiscite, the same-sex marriage plebiscite, that people, postal survey, sorry, never even made it to plebiscite, (laughs) um, that people would say, you'd hear grandmothers and people say, I I had it in my own families, people saying, oh, you know, you've changed our lives, you're gay, your family seems successful, we'll vote yes because they knew you, they saw you. And if Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are not entrenched in people's lives apart from a small group, as he says it, you you don't have that. So then you need something else, Fran. You need an amazing campaign, momentum to build. We're a year away from a referendum. Do we have that precondition? I'm not convinced we do. No, we don't. But I felt listening to Noel's speech, and, and it was such as is always the case with Noel, I think, such an intelligent speech and this one such a generous-hearted speech, I thought. Um, I think maybe, for me, that was the start of the Yes campaign and if those trying to organise a campaign are smart, they will use it as such because, you know, Noel's intellect, his passion, his great gift for oration um, combined everything to give us the historical perspective on how he arrived at this moment and then forward to, as you were saying, what it will mean for all of us if we say yes, that, you know, arguing we'll find actually some relief. White Australians, I think, will find some relief and energy from the acknowledgement of the injustice and the unleashing of the the, the truth-telling and all of that that will follow. So I think that was, uh, it's, a, it's a compelling speech. I think everyone should listen to it. You can see it on iView. It's going to be on the ABC Listen app from Sunday. And um I feel for me that that message was the message that could be at the heart and could be a really powerful heart to the campaign for yes. Mm. Marcy Langton um, spoke to David Spears on 7.30 this week and she made some really interesting and important interventions as well, saying that we need a bigger education campaign that she's... Basically, she's saying... She's putting a hand up as a key person saying, I'm, I'm worried. Um, now, that no one is calling for it not to happen. She's doesn't not, not saying it shouldn't happen. She wants a referendum to happen. But there is now a call from the yes people, including key people like Marcy Langton, saying you need to turbocharge this because 
um, the risk of, of a no vote is pretty serious and obviously there has been the other part of Noel's speech, the galvanising of no voices. Just want to mention the Uluru Statement from the Heart was not just about, of course, the voice. It called for treaty and truth-telling, as you say. There was elements in the budget that committed to some of that as well. Um, not a lot of money, but the no. government's saying, well, you've got to start the process. And, you know, I think that was in there too to try and calm that the stuff we've talked about before about the Greens calling for, you know, treaty first, the government saying, well, we're working on it all, but you've got to move on the referendum. If you're going to do it, you've got to do it now. But yeah, not a lot of money, but it was in there. And I think that was a strategic decision, don't you? Absolutely strategic. Also sort of a, a fig leaf, I think, to the Greens and the left, but also saying, you know, they are, they're both committed to it. We're serious to the whole, the whole thing. There's three elements, absolutely. Although, again, said this before, but it's worth saying again, the Uluru statement, it is a phased approach. It does start with a voice. Um, and, and, you know, you need, there is, there's a reason to the way that that, that has to work in that order. Um, that they articulate. I know people can disagree and people can have that, but in terms of what they called for, there was an order. I want to mention another big thing that happened this week before we let our guest in, and that's let our guest in. Will we let them in? <laughs> Will we let Knocking in? down the door. No, you're not coming in yet, Shane. Go not back. yet, because we've got one more conversation piece. The second thing worth mentioning since we talked last week is the repatriation of the first group of four women and 13 children back to Australia from a detention camp in Syria. Uh, the, these are the families of Islamic State fighters. They've been in the camp since the fall of IS in 2019. They've issued a statement, the women, expressing their regret for the trouble and hurt that they caused, the gratitude for their safe return. But this move um, from the government has caused a big political rift. There is a distinctly different policy position from the government and the opposition on this one. Here's what Peter Dutton had to say. I don't believe that uh, this is in our country's best interest. I obviously wish the families well and I hope that the transition is successful, but I do worry about uh, uh, people coming back from a theatre of war, particularly where they've been in a circumstance uh, where they've been mixing with people who hate our country, hate our way of life, uh, terrorists who are either committed terrorist offences uh, or intend to commit those offences. I think a lot of people uh, are worried about that. And, you know, we have security forces and new security laws, and we have, in fact, more laws, terror laws, than instituted in this country since uh, 9-11 than any other country um, to deal with it. So let's hope that they do work and it will take resources. It is testy, it is sensitive. Uh, you know, there were reports that uh, Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews asked his federal counterparts to perhaps not repatriate any of these women and children to Victoria before the election. I'm not sure if that's been um, confirmed or not, but that was certainly the talk. Yeah, we can't be sure that there was a direct request. What we can be sure of, though, is that, that there is a reluctance. I interviewed the Deputy Premier of Victoria, Jacinda Allen, on RM Breakfast, and I asked her about this in a you know, bit of a quick exchange. We were coming up to the news and I was like, do you, do you want to repatriate them or not? Said, it's the federal government, federal government, yeah. federal government. They don't really want to go there. But we've talked about this before. Yes, people are worried, but really what is the alternative to leave these Australian women and children stranded in a camp in Syria, other countries repatriating their citizens? You know, there's a danger in leaving children in a place like this too, because if they, you know, are hanging out for longer with the people who hate Australia, to quote Peter Dutton, then they're going to get radicalised and they're going to be free agents and they're going to be perhaps in the future targeting Australians too. So I think it's a humane thing and I think it's the right strategic thing to bring these people home. Look, uh, you know, it was a successful mission. Yeah, it and, worked. Right, it worked. Um, and I spoke to Karen Andrews, who's the new Shadow Home Affairs Minister, was the Home Affairs Minister. She says, oh, well, bit of, bit bit of luck. luck. 
a bit of luck. Now, clearly luck has a lot to do with lots of things in life, uh, but... The, the Morrison government did repatriate two families. They were orphans, she says, so it's different. I that think, was lucky too. Was that just lucky? You know, the point is um, we do have an obligation to our citizens. Should we bring our guest in? Let's do it. <laughs> Shane Wright, commonly known as the senior economics correspondent for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. Welcome back to the party room. I think I prefer the drums uh, description of me as Australia's biggest Kate Bush fan. But you go with economics <laughs> correspondent. That, that'll do for today. Oh, you groovy kid. Uh, it's, you know, it's still post-budget flash, so we're really grateful for you giving us this time, Shane. Um, Shane, this week the Reserve Bank raised the cash rate again by a quarter of a percent. Uh, the move takes the RBA's cash rate to 2.85%, which is the highest it's been since May 2013, with the prediction of more rate rises to come. So far, these painful interest rate rises haven't slowed inflation. In fact, it's predicted to rise to 8% by the end of the year, which is going to hurt. The bank's doing its thing. Shane, is there more the government can do to, quote Jim Sharma's, slay that inflation dragon? Well, apart from putting on some armour and uh, finding dragons to tilt a sword at, I'm not, not exactly sure. Look, they could go through a program of really deep spending cuts, but uh, feel free to volunteer uh, which uh, which person you want to knife in the back with some some funding cuts uh, at the moment, especially given where we're going with inflation. Uh, I think one of the interesting bits is that people, and this came up actually this week when uh, uh, Angus Taylor, the shadow treasurer, spoke uh, to the press club. He was saying, "Look, the economy's got to grow faster than spending. That's the way to get the budget into into Nick. That's actually what the budget is doing." both at a nominal and inflation-adjusted terms, mm. the economy is supposed to grow faster than spending. We are send, seeing some real spending cuts because the government's actually holding the line in a lot of spaces and the advantage, of course, of there not being an election to promise anything for. Um, so you've, that's one way they can do it. But inflation in this country has been building for the last 12 months all those who say it's just supply, it's just Ukraine, no, that is not what's going on. This has been building for a bit longer than that. So there are some fundamental changes, reforms that have to be done. And Like what? Well, you could start in the tax space, you could start in the housing space, you could start, I don't know, in the health and education space, uh, where you could start in the competition space. There are large areas that uh, this country hasn't discussed in terms of real reform. Like tax comes up all the time, but in that case, often it's people saying, I want to pay less tax. That's not tax reform. That's just getting somebody else to pay for you. Uh, but the Productivity Commission's at the centre of a, an inquiry right at the moment of ways to uh, lift the growth speed of the country. The report they did in this space five years ago, look, I've got a collection of it. Uh, it's got dust on it because no, the previous government didn't want to go into it because they're really contentious changes. Uh, that are being proposed in that space. We're going to see that again next year. That report will come out. So there are avenues to get the economy growing at a better pace with less inflationary pressures. But the other space is, of course, monetary policy, and that's what the Reserve Bank's up to. So one of the things the government talked a lot about this week was that, you know, this issue, as, as we've been saying, inflation and, and that cash handouts actually would have led to, what was it? They've actually quantified it now, half a percentage point more to inflation. Mm. <laughs> They're trying to paint the alternative vision of what would happen to you. You know, your mortgage would go up much further if they were to do that. Is it going to work? They have to obviously bring people on their journey 
uh, the economic journey, but but is, is anyone do, buying right? it? Yeah, it is hard to do, especially given the last two years where governments have been handing out money. Like, if there's a problem, we'll give you money. Like that's how we got through COVID, and that is a mindset that inside Treasury they've particularly worried that that's what's grabbed the the imagination of people. And we saw it in the March budget, where right we're going to reduce the price of oil and we're going to give you what was it four hundred and twenty dollars extra in tax uh, refunds. At the time, it was problematic, and we actually wrote stories at the same at the time saying this will add to inflation. Lo and behold. It has because you've added you added twelve billion dollars into the pockets of people who could afford to go out and spend, and they are still spending. We had uh, retail trade figures out this week showing people, even when you take into account inflation, are still spending more. It's not impossible, though, Shane, is it, to convince people that pain now is for gain later? I mean, you know, John, John Howard sold a, a GST. And that was a tough reform to sell off the back of, you know, a never, ever promise. And Remember, my he almost lost the, he almost well, he lost the 98 he, election. No, no, yeah. he did. That's true. He, he paid a bit electoral price with that, what was it, mm. 60-pound gorilla on his back. Um, but the only way they got through it and managed it, I think, was to have Peter Costello out there every day for a year or more banging on about, about the need for it. <laughs> Do you think these are different times? Do you think it's still possible to sell kind of a negative message as a positive? Yeah, I think as someone who looks a lot at uh, the history of budgets and and policy change, and Keating was the other one who had to sell difficult yeah. policy. They, they t- those this two, is the recession we had to have. These two gentlemen, well, more the uh, the uh, Banana Republic comments that yeah. he made to John Laws in uh, about 1985, which really kickstarted the re- like the the reform agenda that they got underway and then led into micro-reform through the uh, early 1990s. Both of those gentlemen knew how to sell difficult issues. Whichever side of politics you come from, you have to concede that both of them knew what they were doing in terms of explaining and talking through to the general public very complex issues. But they didn't have to do it with 24-7 coverage, exactly. with idiots on social media um, and the way that vest, I think vested interests over the last 25, 30 years have become much more, uh, much better at f- protecting their patch. That I think that would challenge both mm. Keating and Costello right now. Yeah. And we don't know, we don't know where Jim Chalmers is in that, in the pantheon of, I think, what are we on to about? The, he's, I think he's the 41st treasurer, where he sits in that group. No, we don't because it's early days for him, but he certainly, I do think, um, is a good communicator mm. and that's... It's it's not easy to be a good communicator in and it, politics. And he does stay on message quite well, I think, just sort of noting these first few months. Uh, Shane, uh, PK and I were speaking earlier about the government openly musing now about putting a price cap on energy operators, but it's talk still. They haven't done it, but it's a pretty significant market intervention if they do it. Have you got a sense of when they are going to announce this and actually do it? Well, it's interesting. There was comments from Chalmers yesterday when uh, he said there had been a threshold crossed in terms of the gas companies and how how high they'd pushed prices. But he also went into great depths about how the fact he'd had to speak to the South Korean uh, finance minister. And South Korea is a huge market for Australian LNG. They have concerns about what a price cap might mean. And I put it this way. If you capped uh, domestic prices, which is what they're looking at. If you are a sensible sort of um, 
LNG exporter, how would you make up the profit? You'd be lifting the price on your exports. So you can see what if you're an export uh, a customer, you'd be worried about what goes on in the domestic market. Or accept lower Australia. profits. Well, look, I would never get in the way of, a, a, especially an oil and gas company saying, give me a bigger, bigger profit. Um, this is where you're getting into why it's difficult and why um, price controls, like Richard Nixon went down this path in the early 70s with price controls and it fell apart within 18 months because, because you'll, like like King Canute, you've got your finger in the in the dike and you're holding back everything. So I can see why, like the rhetoric, they've got the rhetoric right, the government, in terms of how the, the terrible oil and gas companies, and so they are, we talked about vested interests not long ago, they are really trying to push back, but trying to then make a change that doesn't ripple badly across the rest of the economy that's why it's taking a while. And I, but I still think they're going to have to move very quickly. They, they can't let this drag out till Christmas. They certainly can't. You're right. They can't let it drag out. Um, yeah, completely agree with you. How can they? I mean, and, and just noting, I'm uh, just trying to move on, but I can't help myself. This all fell into their lap right after they were elected. So this is not a, a brand new issue. So it's been going on for some months. It's not new. But let's talk more specifically about the other big thing that's confronting the government at the moment. Well, it's it's put forward its industrial relations bill. But who, holy dooly, my favourite term, um, the <laughs> business ain't so happy. It's not sort of happy families and aren't we all friends at the moment, is it? Uh, Chief Executive of the Australian Resources and Energy Employer Association, Steve Knight, has threatened a campaign against the legislation. He told the Australian newspaper there was white hot anger in the mining oil and gas industries about the Steve, bill. Steve Knott is the one of the feistiest persons in the IR space and if you're quoting Steve Knott, you've gone to the to, to the far end of the argument. It's it's like to the edge some, of the outrage. It's like it's like quoting someone from the uh, the maritime union uh, and saying, "Well, look, this is terrible for workers." There's a middle ground in between Steve Knott and the MUA, and that's where most people are. Maybe in the public, but will. Yes. Will business groups potentially fund a, up to a $20 million ad campaign? Will it spook Labor? Clearly, there is some history here. Um, Labor has faced a big campaign before. They have, um, but they took on miners. This is saying well, we're, we're actually taking on employers on behalf of the 13.5 million people who get a paycheck. The, the, the dynamics are slightly different in this space. I, I find the IR debate intriguing because people have lived the I love the that experience. about you, Shane. I, I thought you might, Fran. I thought you might. But the, um, th the last 10 years where we have seen and people have experienced it, the slowdown in wages growth in this country, and say the Productivity Commission has pointed out the last 10 years in terms of productivity has been the worst since the 1950s. Now, you can argue what sort of factors are involved, but clearly industrial relations is part of it. You can't argue the status quo. The status quo is, is completely ignoring the lived experience of the entire country for a decade. And I think 
you can see why you get to this point where the yeah. government is throwing up different options. At and, and that's why Tony Burke, the IR minister, is saying, you know, we've got to move on this quickly because we have to get wages moving. But there's a lot of elements to his bill. Some of them mm. are, are about, you know, gender equity uh, measures to try and, um, you know, through through one angle, lift wages for some of those lower paid feminised sectors of the community of, the, of, of Australia. Um, but the other part and the more contentious part is the multi-employer bargaining the government doesn't want to split the bill, but they're hitting some roadblocks in the Senate, uh, particularly from Senator Jackie Lambie, but also independent Senator David Pocock, who is arguing really loudly there needs to be more time for this debate because Tony Burke says we've got to get this done before Parliament rises on the December the 1st. Here's David Pocock on breakfast. Looking at how long the Senate has had to uh, take submissions and then hold committee hearings, all the way back to work choices in 2005... This sort of timeline is unprecedented for a big piece of industrial relations reform. We've got to get this right. It is, it is crucial that we have industrial relations reform that will get uh, real wage growth moving, but we need to work through all the unintended consequences to make sure this legislation is a good piece of legislation that's going to set us up for the future. Now, the obvious question, Shane, is that fair enough? Just, you know, give it a bit more time for this inquiry to hear from all the stakeholders. Tony Burke is not for turning right now. And, you know, he, he's he's of the view. And I think this is a, a, a an approach we're going to see from the Albanese government a lot, I think, is to just sort of hold your ground, keep talking, keep talking, keep talking, and then see. Rather than dig in, I think they will make something happen before deadline. But I think Tony Burke is talking a lot this week. I know he's had a lot of talks with business groups, you know, looking at amendments, trying to take them back, see if they can get some ground with business groups. He's not given up convincing business groups or David Pocock, I think, in the Senate that um, this bill will work. But ultimately, where do you think this is going to end up this year? Well, I, I still look at the bill more as like a, an ambit claim, um, to, to be in the IR vernacular and they're looking to see what they can get through. Like three weeks, like the committee process, three weeks for such a substantial and and as you mentioned, Fran, the, the multiple uh, avenues of change that they're looking at is, mm -hmm. is just being a bit silly. Yeah. Like it, and, and so if you are deadly serious about this, and you know you've got to you've got to bring the Senate along with you. Then you do have to you, you should be giving them more time mm. to look at this. Um, and at the end of the day, and this is something the Reserve Bank has been talking about a great deal, is the way that we set wages in this country. Normally, it comes around through the July one next year. So it, we our EBAs, if people are still on EBAs, fall over every two to three mm. years, and they're normally around the the middle of the financial year. So there is the time to get it right and to see how many people you can get along. But of course, they're also thinking, right, if we give the if we give our opponents too much time, they will launch pull a campaign. Together 20, launch a campaign <laughs> yeah. against us. Yeah, uh, well, I yeah. think they're trying to seize the political momentum. Absolutely, yeah. by, by the end of the year, uh, uh, that's part of it. But at the end of the day, it's basic, you know, numbers one hundred and one. They haven't got the numbers to get it through the Senate. Sure, the Greens are sympathetic, but. They need Pocock, they need Lambie, uh, they don't have them yet and they're going to have to play ball and divide the bill whether they like it or not. Because so divide the bill or hold it all till next year, I guess that becomes the only question then really. And we've still, we've, there's only two weeks of sittings, that, that's it for, for this year. And it's hard to see, like, and they've got to get through, say, the, uh, the, the Anti-Corruption Commission, 
which ones, like they are two very big pieces of ledge mm. that these guys have to get through, which ones more, which ones has to be in place the earlier. And that that's ultimately a political choice that the government's going to have to make. It's a big choice, but uh, lots of elements of that bill, the better off overall test, actually, there's a lot of agreement on changing it. So mm. there's some, some wins in there too for enterprise bargaining. Which makes it... Um, you know, you're looking on and you're thinking, well, hang on, there is a whole lot that there is agreement on that would make change. Why not just let that through and hold the, the hard bit? Because you make it too easy to never vote against the do hard that, bit do that. then if you just hold that off. Politically, not in their interests, I don't think. Oh, God, so much juicy legislation. This next couple of weeks is going to be a cracker. Off, hats off to the new government for at least providing juicy legislation to debate. I got bored of just talking about politics. Now it's politics with policy together. Who right? are? You're easily pleased, aren't you? I'm I'm easily pleased. I like Not policy, actually. Yeah. I don't think she's I'm, easily I'm pleased. Master. At the moment, the most exciting thing for me is what's going on at the Reserve Bank. In terms of we have the, the, the country's most important financial institution. Yes, Treasury thinks it is, but it's ultimately the Reserve Bank undergoing their first review in 40 years. When and will we that, get that? When will we get, we the get that in of that? Mar- we get that in the end of March. Now, we're talking about, say, IR, we're talking about anti-corruption. What happens in Martin Place, how, that, how interest rates in this country are set, it, it affects everybody to some extent, and something is about to change in that space. Do you think there will be much change, Shane, in how interest rates are set from a review? I mean, we're just seeing all these interest rate rises now happening before that time. If if that's the case, if you think there's going to be more change, maybe the government should say to the bank, we'll just hold off on these rate changes no, until I, we you finish see, this. They've got to deal with inflation. That's still their day job. But um, the days, like we, you will see the board change. Yeah. Like and look, good maybe luck a workers' it. representative at the table. Well, the last one was Bill Kelty back in 1996, and we talk like the fact that the Reserve Bank, along with Treasury, was unable to work out what the hell was going on with wages over the past decade, and was forecasting this huge increase in wages, and it never occurred. There and the Reserve Bank is sitting there. The, the Reserve Bank employs more people than Treasury. Mm, wow! And yet they weren't. They they missed it. They they got it wrong. And that has repercussions. And in terms of interest rate settings, the pace of the economic growth, it goes to how many people are employed. Like there was some, there's some analysis saying that where the Reserve Bank was in pre-COVID cost a quarter of a million people a job. That's a real impact by any stretch of the imagination. Huge. So I know, look, pa- uh, Patricia, you're very excited about a bit of policy that's what I'm excited about at the moment. We've too. all got our interests. I think that's <laughs> rather do. interesting too. So I'm glad you shared that insight. Shane, thanks for coming on the party room. It's always a pleasure partying with you girls. Thanks, Shane. See you later. Cheers. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Order. And this question comes from Professor Karen Phelps AM, who, of course, is a former independent member for Wentworth. And she asks, when is Anthony Albanese going to acknowledge the deaths and disability from COVID-19 and make a plan for the next wave? Well, I think, you know, during the election campaign, um, Anthony Albanese did pledge that he would come up with a plan quickly to to deal with COVID into the future. They came up with something, but really it wasn't much. And what we are seeing is another wave of COVID right now. So I think pretty much it's fair to say a lot of people have just forgotten about COVID. There's no more masks wearing going on by and large. And, you know, people are going out in droves to big 
groups and big things and just look at the spring carnival, the races and, you know, people aren't too worried at the moment. But there has been a new wave of infections. In Victoria, I think infections are up 25%. Um, here in Sydney, you know, I'm starting to know people again who are, who are sick with COVID. And that's there's also the issue of long COVID. And the health minister and others have been speaking about the impact of this on the economy. I think the Treasurer has even talked about it. The number of people who are out, you know, can't go back to work, can't resume work because of long COVID. And there's not really a strategy in place for this particularly. And I think that's what we need. There certainly needs to be more action from the government to plan for dealing with long COVID? Are these people going to be allowed to be on the NDIS if they're forever affected by it? Um, what kind of funding have we got into research for long COVID? Because mm. not much known about it. There's not many long COVID clinics. I know people are waiting months and months and months to get an appointment in a long COVID clinic. So there are certainly things going on out there that aren't really being spoken about in the front line um, of information. And I think it's needed to be. And it is interesting that we are seeing what Europe saw, that, you know, a new wave comes along and people are getting sick again. And really, should there be more mask wearing going on still? Should we be still mindful of social distancing? What's going on? The big issue is um, our third dose is just not high enough in this country. I think there has been a failure to really uh, push for that to, to be increased. There's probably lots of factors there. Yes, people want to forget this virus, but we are now living with it. So you, know, you don't have that luxury and it has a disproportionate impact on the vulnerable. So you shouldn't have that luxury because it's it's just not a fair society to do it that way. I do think the Prime Minister avoids it. And that's because of the fatigue with COVID. So I don't think there's... That's the other thing I hear a lot. Oh, can we just stop talking about COVID? I hear that a lot. Yeah. I suppose, again, I'd love to, but if people are actually suffering the next wave and it's, for some people it's detrimental, well, that's why we're talking about it. One other point, there is a special committee that's been set up to look at long COVID they're taking submissions at the moment and there are some really heavy hitter um, MPs that are really concerned about this. I think it'll be very, very, when it when it concludes and it goes through all the evidence, it will make some recommendations to the government and the government's going to have to take them seriously because we've got people like Dr. Mike Freelander, for instance, and the Labor side involved who are really concerned about long COVID. And so watch that space, although I do think it's fair to say that this government doesn't want to talk about it a whole lot. Keep sending your questions in because we love getting them. You can tweet using the hashtag The Party Room or email your questions to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. And remember to follow us, of course, if you haven't already, and I'm sure you have, on the ABC Listen app. You'll never miss an episode. Never, ever. That's it for The Party Room this week. See you, PK. See you, Fran. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.